What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 580 with my guest, Director Amy Ziering. Uh, I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for nut jobs. Welcome. Enter through the front door. Sit down. Enjoy our waiting room. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychiatrist. Uh, I am a jackass that tells dick jokes, but I do have some experience in therapy, support groups, seeing a psychiatrist, sucking my thumb and staring out the window. I think that's my wheelhouse. Anyway, uh, welcome if you're a new listener. Our uh, conversation today with Amy. Amy doesn't get a lot into her own uh, personal struggles, but I wanted to have her on because she's a really important documentary uh, filmmaker, and she's done some amazing documentaries, um, especially around um, people who've experienced sexual trauma and the struggle for them to come forward, especially uh, those where the perpetrators were public figures. She did an amazing documentary called Alan versus Pharaoh and uh, a bunch of others that we'll, uh, we'll talk about. So let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a guy who calls himself The Works. And he writes, wondering if there are any podcasts about dealing with a porn addiction. I'm wondering why episode 209 was deleted. Well, occasionally um, people who were past guests ask me to take an episode down because one of the things that they will discover is maybe they'll, they'll talk about something really personal and they're, you know, down the road. That's the first thing that comes up when somebody's hiring them and, uh they're afraid that it's going to influence whether or not they're going to they're going to get a job, and whether that's true or not, I try to respect their their uh, wishes because they don't ever want anybody to feel like you know they expose themselves on the podcast and now they have they have no choice. Um, so that's why that episode is is no longer up there. And oh yeah, we've definitely done episodes where we talk about uh, porn addiction. Um, my mind is blanking right now, but anytime you want to find an episode that has something uh, to do with a particular subject matter, just Google 
uh, a key word, you know, like porn or porn addiction, and then include the word mental pod as well. And you know, you should get some get some results. Hope that answers your question. This uh, is also from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself FOMO or No No. And she writes, Hey, Paul, I just enjoyed the episode with Patrick McGinnis. Thank you. But I have a question which has been really driving me crazy recently. And then listening to this episode made it even worse and my brain almost exploded. You guys, as many people do, discussed two topics separately. Firstly, being true to yourself by making sure you're following the right path for you for you in life, such as changing your job if it doesn't bring you joy. Then separately, you guys discussed fear of missing out and how to avoid it by appreciating what we have. I loved both chats. However, how the heck are we supposed to decipher between what are genuine alternative life paths we should follow and what is fear of missing out. For me, after many trials and life challenges, I am now a successful scientist. I have 10 years of experience and I have a permanent, well-paid job, nice house, blah, blah, blah. But for the last five or so years, I've wondered if I would be better suited to a totally different career, one in psychology which I am so curious about, way more than I'm curious about electrons. I can, for the life of me, distinguish between whether I am just experiencing FOMO and I should be grateful for what I have in my work, or if this is a genuine quest I should follow and retain entirely, retrain entirely as a 34-year-old mom. Um, I appreciate commenting on my life situation, uh, is kind of hard, but I'd love to know your take in general on distinguishing between FOMO or real gut instinct to change. And that is a great question. Thank you. Thank you for uh, pointing that out and asking that uh, because there is that fine line between the need for change and uh, just a lack of appreciation. And while I don't think there's any one kind of canned answer for that, I think the appreciation for what we have was more talking uh, about kind of in the material world and, um, you know, the the fear of missing out. Oh, my house isn't big enough. You know, not that you can't have career goals and want to have a bigger house, but not appreciating the fact that you even have a house in the meantime, for me, would be kind of a a FOMO. And as far as the life paths, uh, you know, for me, we know when we're experiencing passion, for something, and especially if there's curiosity attached to it. And so I don't think we need to quit our job overnight and try something else immediately. How about, you know, dipping your toe in the pool, taking some some night classes uh, around psychology and see if you see if you like it. And uh, and if you do, then I think you know the universe is probably telling you, hey, let, you know, let's let's check this out. So I don't know if that if that makes any sense, but those are my two cents. Uh, This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is filled out by Emma, and she writes, have you ever been emotionally abusive or manipulative in a romantic relationship? Uh, Can you explain how? Yes, I have been. Um, I'm, I'm sorry to admit, and I think I've been pretty open on this podcast about my failures as a, as a partner, and this would apply to, to past relationships where 
I was controlling in terms of, you know, I, th- I thought I knew best about what that person should be doing, you know, applying for jobs or, uh, you know, going to this party or that party. And it wasn't until I got sober that I realized I was projecting my own fears. I was worried about my own survival and was, was not being able to distingu- distinguish between where I ended and they began. And I'd like to think I'm not that person anymore. And it's not like I would use horrible words and, you know, berate that person. I would just be distant and kind of cold. And and, it, and I made everything all about me. Uh, and I'd like to think that I'm, I'm not that guy anymore. Manipulation is something I definitely struggle with because deep down inside, I have a uh, you know, issues with trust and uh, fear of lack of control. And it's something that I work on all the time. And I think I've gotten progressively better over the years, but it is hard for me to let go. You know, I heard somebody say in a sport group once, everything that I've let go of has claw marks on it. And I kind of feel the same way. So um, I hope that I hope that answers your question. And And I can tell you this, the more I have practiced self-care and just tried to change myself rather than the world around me and other people and how they think and act, the easier it's been for me to accept them as the flawed human beings they are. And by that, I don't mean being a doormat or tolerating toxic people, but not trying to get into the insanity of changing someone. Uh, this is from the Struggle in the Sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself consistently codependent and about her anxiety. She writes, like my mind is trying to kill my heart. About her codependency, like I hired myself for a job that I don't even want to work at and don't ever get paid for, but I just keep clocking in. That is a Hall of Fame. That is so good. Thank you for that. This is also from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a non-binary person who refers to themselves as when the going gets tough, the tough gets suicidal. Oh, that is so dark. And about their depression, I hate myself for building a relationship with a partner and getting a dog because now I can't kill myself without anyone noticing. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I think so many of us on some level relate to that and find the the humor in that. Thank you for sharing that. This is a same survey filled out by a guy who calls himself, my penis is never big enough to cure my depression. Oh my God. Why, why do, why are so many men, myself included, so hung up on the size of our dicks? Yeah, there's probably some women, and I know there are some women that care about the size of a guy's dick, but it certainly has never seemed like the most important thing to a woman. Although I did hear years ago, my neighbors, uh, I was probably in my early 30s, and they were probably in their their early 20s, and uh, we were driving in the car, and they were talking about dating and they it both agreed that sometimes uh, they were dating guys whose whose dicks were just too small. And one of them said, yeah, I mean, fuck, I'd rather just get finger blasted. 
And I remember thinking, I hope you never become therapists. Uh, uh, so he shares about his uh, alcoholism and drug addiction. He writes, I've been drinking since I was 15. I'm now 35 and have lost many relationships because of it. I fucking hate it. I get disgusted by it. And every couple of months, uh, I quit every couple of months just to come back to it. I'm sure there's an underlying issue that leads me to continue to come back to drinking, but I'm not sure what it is. I've seen professional help before, and it was helpful. Maybe the wrong therapist? Question mark. Regardless, this is a huge problem in my life, and I've tried many times to stop to no avail. I'm really glad you you shared that. And if you are an alcoholic or an addict, um, in my opinion, the thing that that can work, especially if you put the effort into it, are support groups because therapy is great for a lot of different things, but I don't know anybody who has ever had the desire to drink or do drugs removed from therapy alone. But I do know many people, myself included, who have had spiritual experiences, not religious experiences, but spiritual experiences in support groups where the the desire to drink and use was lifted from us. And in my opinion, it was a result of doing the inner work, self-examination, being of service, being vulnerable, and learning to be a part of something greater than just ourselves in the pursuit of our own pleasure. Uh, I am fortunate enough to have had the obsession to drink and do drugs removed from me 18 years ago. And it has not come back, and I'm really grateful for that. But it's also why I continue to go to support groups, because I don't want it to come back. And I know if I stop doing what worked for me, it will come back. And as helpful as therapy is for me in a lot of my issues, I need that community to help me with my drinking and drugging. So I hope that makes sense. Thank you for your question. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence Survey. I, I abbreviated their their name on this, and now I'm trying to make sense of what the fuck it is. Uh, lots of little reasons why I'm fucked up, something, something like that. I have written LL of reasons why I'm fucked up, so I don't know. You probably, if you wrote this, you probably recognize it already. Uh, about their anorexia, like my body is screaming at me to eat while punishing me for appeasing its demands. About their codependency, I'm, uh, it's obsessively checking on my partner to make sure I'm not ruining their life so often that I'm ruining my own. About their PTSD, like I'm carrying a 50-gallon bucket full of all of my pain and emotions. It's cracked and heavy and all of the pain keeps sloshing over the sides onto the people that I love, poisoning them with the weight of my trauma that isn't theirs to carry. About being a sex crime victim. I'm not allowed to have my own body. I am here for other people to enjoy, and everybody only wants you to shut the fuck up so you don't disturb them. I wouldn't want to make them uncomfortable with my trauma. About their autism, like there is a piece of glass between myself and the rest of the world. I can see them, and I beat on the glass, asking for someone to explain why I'm too different to love, but nobody cares enough to break it for me. 
about experiencing derealization. Everything feels two inches to the left. Thank you for that. And that's something that we haven't covered often on the podcast is uh, derealization and uh, depersonalization. They don't get talked about uh, a lot. And I'm always looking for, uh, for guests uh, in, the, in the area, the Los Angeles area, who can, who can talk about that. This is also from the struggle in a sentence filled out by a trans woman who uh, calls herself the Twilight Zone and about her uh, anxiety. She writes, everybody talks about me, but never to me. That is, that is very pithy. Very, very pithy and, uh, and concise about her PTSD. Every day I check my emails and my mind flashes my abuser's name in an email even though I know he's dead. That has to be hard. This is uh, from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a trans man who refers to himself as Theo. And he writes, uh, I hope you don't mind me asking this. When you've spoken about your therapist from BetterHelp in the past, you've said her name was Donna, though recently you've talked about Heidi on the podcast. How do you know? Oh, and how do you know it's time to move on to a new therapist? How do you approach that with your current therapist that you want to not see them anymore? Um, my old therapist left BetterHelp because she uh, had a critically ill husband that she needed to care for. Uh, so that's why I'm with, uh, I've been with Heidi now for, uh, I guess, about four months. And as far as moving, making the choice to move on to a, a new therapist, I did that in the past too before I was with BetterHelp. And um, I just felt like she wasn't really present during the sessions. She was forgetful about what we had talked about before, so I felt like I was having to recap a lot of stuff. Um, there was just, uh, I just didn't, I wasn't feeling it. And that can be enough to want to change therapists. And so I called, and thankfully she didn't pick up because I, I was so afraid to have a live conversation on the on the phone. And I left a message and said, uh, you know, I... I'm going to move on and find somebody else. I'm um, just not feeling uh, like I'm getting my needs met in this. And I hope you understand. And any good therapist will understand that it's about what you need, not about them and how they want to feel. It's the whole reason we go to therapy. We don't go to therapy to help how they feel. We go to help how we feel. I hope that answers your question. And speaking of uh, BetterHelp, this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, as we've talked about on the podcast, relationships, especially those with, uh, with ourselves, take a lot of work, a lot of work. And it can be really confusing understanding where we end and somebody else begins what our basic needs are, how to practice self-care. Well, this month, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you that you matter just as much as everyone else does, and therapy is a great way to make sure you show up for yourself. Uh, BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. I personally like to, so I... I do the video therapy every other week with uh, with Heidi. 
Uh, BetterHelp is much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. So give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. I am a big fan of it. And uh, again, this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and you guys in mental illness Happy Hour listeners get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash mental. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash mental. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And then finally, this is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Bonnie B. And about her depression, she writes, I feel like a CD skipping on the same thought and same words and same sad song. About her ADD, living in a jar of jelly beans and having the task of pulling out all the red ones in order to feel, quote, in order, but there's just so many pretty colors. About her anxiety, buzzing like a bee deep in my chest, tingling like a barbed wire touching my soul, but looking as cool and calm as a librarian. About her alcoholism and drug addiction like a squirrel hoarding nuts for winter and then counting them ten times a day to see how many I can eat before winter comes. About chronic pain, my hourly visit from the stripper jumping out of a UFO, lap dancing in a cow suit. I've never heard that one before. However, everyone is plugging their ears with stress and closing their eyes to empathy to see it happen and doesn't believe that it ever does. About her PTSD, my lover's hands turned into an old man's, his hair turned gray, and then he got mad that I keep asking him to stop. That is heavy. About having bipolar, the lows are so low, my nose is to the concrete. My highs are so high, it's like my hands are to the sun. My lows are invisible, 
my highs are blinding. About the pandemic, I have never hated being a nurse more. And then a snapshot from her life. I work 10 hours at my new job where I am a boss, which I hate and it's stressing me out. I also have no money as I was unable to walk with three slip discs and my insurance decided not to cover anything. I'm in pain. I'm stressed out and I've been taking care of you forever. You've been sober for three years. I've been out of love with you for about two and when I came home to find the cats playing with dope bags, the toilet knocked off its place on the tile, blood on the walls and a spoon and a cup of water on the table, you look at me and say, I took a clonopin. Can we talk about it when you get home from work? The rage. I threw keys in your direction and blood gushed from your eye and I was so happy that I was able to hurt you and that I finally had a reason to get you out of my home. I'm sad for you, for me more, but no one ever wins this one. Your fear of death is your love of life in reverse. I'm a kinky person. I didn't want to be... I'm, I'm ashamed. A sexual being. Deeply ashamed. You are... I want to live... Fucking depressed. But how? I can't do this anymore. I will be uncomfortable, so you will be comfortable. Is life just a series of perpetual losses? You're not depressed. We're black. There is no real chance for intimacy. We don't do that. Without risking being hurt. Push it all down. You can't go around it. Ireland, like we don't do mental health talk. Through is the only path. No one is ever alone. There's somebody else out there. Don't forget experiencing the same thing as you. That the places you feel most broken now you just gotta look for them. Will one day be your greatest strength. And when you find them, it's a great feeling. And I'm suddenly feeling horrible about <laughs> making that joke, but that's how far I will go to get a laugh because I am empty inside. Uh, you're in the right place. I'm here with Amy Ziering, who is an investigative filmmaker. Uh, big fan of your work, Amy. Oh, thank uh, you. Um, Amy's done Alan versus Pharaoh, which was a four-part series that came out on uh, HBO. It was HBO, correct? Yes, HBO. Yeah. Um, really, really well done. Um, you did on the record, which I also happened to see in the in the last six months. Again, really, really well done. Um, you did The Invisible War in 2012. You did The Hunting Ground in 2015. I mean, uh, I don't want to start this off by blowing smoke right up your ass, Amy, but <laughs> Jesus Christ, <laughs> you have done That's some profoundly kind. impactful and oh, important thank you. work. Um, yeah. What yeah. What... Where do we begin with your story? I'd like I'd like to talk about your story before we um, launch into your work. Uh, if you're comfortable talking about your life and what drives you and what inspired you to do the work that you do, and for those who may not be familiar with uh, these amazing documentaries, the I suppose the through line is is. Um, the enabling of rape culture, the institutional um, machinery of powerful people continuing to get away with abuses of power, um, usually males in position of power, and um, 
taking advantage of women they work with or who have they have a position of power over is it would is that a, a fair way of describing it yeah i think the projects you mentioned are each different i would i guess most simplistically say explorations of rape culture yeah. you know and its broad ramifications from how it influences the victim slash survivor um how um the longevity of that trauma how that trauma has ripple effects not just um it's not contained to the person themselves, but, you know, as we know, with secondary PTSD and with the nature of these symptoms, it, it actually causes, you know, uh, symptoms, you know, in loved ones and society, honestly, at large. So, oh, yeah. um, and then and their also, loved ones said, and generations, yeah. generations of people. Generations. Yeah. Yeah. And yes, there are perpetrators, but there's a whole culture, as you mentioned earlier, of complicity. Um, the criminal justice system, our, you know, our, our misogynistic ideologies, um, the power structures in institutions that enable perpetrators to, to perpetrate these crimes with impunity. And that's really important so that because if we don't change all those factors, then, mm -hmm. you know, you have these exponential numbers when you're protecting the predator, when our culture is all geared to protect predators and not victims. It, you know, it's it's the you know, it's the horror show we live in. The the moment that I think kind of sums it up best was during uh, Chanel Miller's court case when oh, the yeah. judge expressed concern about <sighs> this young man's future. Yeah, uh, I, th I think that was a watershed moment for for us culturally. And I don't. I don't know if social media hadn't been around, if it would have rippled the way the way that it did. What are your, what are your thoughts uh, on that? That was a watershed moment in the movement and an awareness. I actually have uh, an interesting backstory anecdote to that, which is kind of crazy. Um, I was I had right. I had made. Invisible War and Hunting Ground. And in the course of those films, Invisible War looked at the epidemic of rape in our military. It came out in 2012. It was way before its time, right? So this is pre-Me Too. When we were pitching this film, we were told, honestly, and, and I had had a pretty successful career at that point, and I could not get a funder to back it because I was told that no one wants to listen to women's stories. No one wants to listen to women's stories about being raped. And no one certainly wants to listen to stories about women being raped or in the military. It's like, you've got three things going against this film and we couldn't get a funder to pick it up. So we just went on our own and started and started, you know, uh, making the film. And, and as hold, I said, hold, that, hold, hold yeah. on for one second. What did that yeah. feel like to, to hear that? It probably didn't shock you. It didn't. It, it was odd thinking back. I mean, that last comment I said about the three, that's a direct quote from a very progressive liberal place that makes a lot of great documentaries. And that was one of their, you know, top executives who said that, that, that iteration surprised me. Everything else kind of didn't, because remember, this is 2010. That's when we were pitching this and the world was a different place, right? Yeah. It wasn't strange to say no one wants to hear women's stories. That wasn't what we were seeing. It wasn't, it wasn't strange to say no one wants to hear rape stories. Um, so I wasn't surprised. Also, right, we all are part of our culture. I've inhaled the same toxic <laughs> ideologies and beliefs. I'm not impervious. So I'm like, oh, yeah, maybe, you know, this is I was outraged. I mean, I still wanted to make the film. It wasn't going to be deterrent. I mean, 
my first film was on Jacques Derrida. So I'm not a person who really like is into zeitgeist clearly. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't like, oh my God, you know, but it was, yeah, I mean, that last one hurt. Everything else was, oh, okay, I get it. That last formulation was kind of um, intense. But now I've gone down a rabbit hole and I forget what your inaugural you question were, uh, was. I, I brought up the Chanel Miller quote. And oh, you, anyway, you so I made, made that film and then I'd made The Hunting Ground, which was on, mm-hmm. for those listening, which also was, which was made in response to students having watched Invisible War. This is talking about the importance of of, of actually film and investigative reporting, but students watched Invisible War and wrote us in emails, which I thought were, I was like, wait, is there some like, are they all talking to each other and, and coordinating this? I was getting emails daily from different campuses saying, dear Ms. Ziering, dear Mr. Dick, please make a film on what's, you don't have to go to, you know, the military, just come here to Barnard, come here to uh, Bowdoin, come here to USC, you know, please, we have, we have a situation in these places that we really would love someone to shine a light on. So um, we made the hunting ground a couple of years later, we pivoted, we actually were working something else, made the hunting ground, was had an easier time getting funding. And, um, and in the course, okay, so in the course of making both those films, I met I'm not a survivor. So I had no one degree relationship to this issue prior to jumping in and doing it. But in the course of making these works, I met, you know, a lot of amazing people. One of the women I met for when I was working on Hunting Ground is named Michelle Dauber. She's a professor of law at Stanford. Absolutely brilliant off the charts. If you want to follow someone on Twitter, like she's incredible and a a real hardcore activist. Um, And, um, um, we connected at some panel or something, I don't know, and she loved our work and et cetera, et cetera. So I'm sitting at home. I remember it. I'm sitting at home and my phone rings and it's Michelle Dauber. And she says, Amy, I'm in a courtroom up at, you know, Stanford or wherever courtroom was. I don't know. I'm bad with geography. Um, and I am listening to this speech. It is mic drop. It is mind blowing. We have to get it out. Who do you know? How can we do that? Can I send it to you? I'm gonna ask Chanel. She didn't say the woman's name. She called her Jane Doe actually. Right. I'm gonna ask Jane Doe if she'll let you read it. Wow. And I, yes, this is the God's honest truth. So I'm like, um, and so she sends it to me. I'm like, you know, sobbing. Like I, I you know, every, every pore is like transformed reading this thing. It's like, poetry it's visceral it's it's everything so economical and so moving and um so i text katie baker because i knew she was she was at that time a buzzfeed reporter and she was following the sexual assault beat because i again right doing the Mm -hmm. outreach for invisible war and hunting ground i met reporters and i liked i remembered her and liked her and this was kind of her passion so i said katie I got, I want, I want, I want you to read something. Will you read it right away? Cause we want to get this out. And she's like, you know, it was like New York. And she's like, I'm at dinner, maybe send it to me. Like, she, you know, I don't know her mm-hmm. that well. Like, are you a crazy lady? Like what's up? You know? So I'm like, okay, cool. Thanks for reading it. Thanks for taking a look. And I thought Buzzfeed would be the best place. So I didn't want to, you know, send it to her. Don't hear anything that night. So I'm like, Ugh. 5 AM. Right. Cause it's, New York Times, 8 a.m., 5 a.m., my cell phone starts blowing up and it's Katie. And she's like, oh my God, I read this. I got it immediately to the editors at BuzzFeed. They are sobbing. They want to run it as soon as possible. Can you get Jane's permission? 
I said, I'll connect you to, I don't know her name, honestly. I didn't know her name. I said, I'll connect you to through, you know, um, on text and blah, blah, blah. And that, and it, it, at that time, I don't know if it still is to this day, it's the number one news story for clicks, the most viral news story that BuzzFeed had, had ever done. This was when 2016, I don't know if something's surpassed yeah. it since probably COVID has or something, but yeah. that's, isn't that incredible? And that that's is, how it happened. That it was incredible. just a miracle and happenstance. It was just, you know, this old girl's network right. and like, you know, and cause also Chanel had no clue. I no no desire. She was None. Just, she, had, she was didn't just, think anybody outside the courtroom no, would ever right. hear her words. She was she just, just writing it for the judge, you know, yes. and we were just lucky that a Michelle called me and that I knew Katie and that actually BuzzFeed yes. had the temerity and courage. But I think that really, you know, I think there've been some pivotal moments in dragging our culture forward on this issue. And yes. I definitely think that was one of them. Yeah. A, a huge moment. Chanel was a, a guest on this podcast and, um, such a great writer, such a great sense of humor. Oh um, if you have not, uh, I'm sure you've read her book. It's called Know My Name. Uh, but to anybody listening, uh, it, it it's it's one of the most profound books that, that that I've ever read. And I say I say that a lot on this podcast, but I read a lot of <laughs> profound books on this podcast because they're usually about something that means something, and it's usually about some see change that's either underway or is necessary. And the moment that you described, I had no idea that that you were a cog in the wheel of that that change. Cause I when I read her book and she was talking about how her impact statement just kind of exploded, I thought, well, I wonder exactly how that began. How did it go from the courtroom to to BuzzFeed? And here I am two months later uh talking to you and I, and now I know that. Uh, let, let's talk about your life a bit, uh, Amy. Um, what what are some parts of you that that you guard, that you are insecure about, or that drive you that are, that are maybe hard to talk about or tough to to. Um, tough to make sense of parts of you that are confusing or that you struggle with either past or, or present. I'm, I'm, I'm always interested in people who do stuff, who do things for a living that are meaningful and who also, as I imagine this is the case with you, bury themselves in work. I can't imagine how busy your life must be. Well, you're right on the ladder. I do bury myself in work, but I'm trying to I'm trying to change that slightly because I don't think that that's necessarily a good thing. But I do like. I mean, it's also not. Um, hmm. I don't know. I haven't. I mean, you're. This is like a therapy thing. I, I I haven't thought. I don't understand my relationship to work honestly because I I love it. So I don't. I don't think that it's bad that it's kind of all I do, but I'd also am wondering how healthy that is or why that is. So I don't have an answer to that, but does it ever, of, does it ever impact your relationships where relationships might get short shifted because of. Oh, know, a thousand percent. Yeah. Talk about that. Oh, I, I think I wasn't the mother I could have been. I think I wasn't the wife I could have been. I think I, um, wasn't the friend. I, 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 I think I'm a different kind of friend than, than for my friend network. The only thing that gave me solace recently, I was listening to a, um, 
a podcast by Catherine Ryan and she was talking about comedians and she was like comedians like or she was talking about herself but she used comedians as the excuse for her, her the way she is she goes everyone who is friends with a comedian knows that like their work life comes first so no I'm not going to go to your birthday party I'm not going to go to your wedding I work weekends you know and like that's that and you're going to be friends with me on those terms and even if I'm going to miss your most important events it doesn't mean I don't love you but I love my work and that's that and you know and that's how it goes and I kind of um you know I thought oh okay other people make those trade-offs and choices because I definitely prioritized for most of my life, I prioritize work over life. You know, it, it, as you're as you're sharing this, I'm, I'm one of the things that I often say on the podcast is in our culture, we put people on pedestals who make huge amounts of money. We put them on the cover of Fortune 500, but during the interview with them, we never ask them, "What's your relationship like with your kid?" Name their five favorite movies. Name two of their best friends. But to me, it's a different situation when it's someone like you, because the work that you are doing is making the world a better place. So yeah. it's kind of like, uh, and, and I would say this is me letting you off the hook for not being there as a parent, but it's kind of like you're taking society in as your child in, in, in some way and doing these things that have tremendous meaning. So it, to me, it's a lot more complicated when you're when you're talking about something where the, the where the parent is not home because they're truly making the world a better place. I mean, that's fucking complicated. Well, yeah, you want me to like I'll I'll, I'll see that and raise you fivefold. Imagine, you know, and your mother's preoccupation from the time you're 2 years old is sexual assault. I mean, good luck having, you know, healthy children who aren't like Right. scarred which I didn't have the wherewithal you know I'm just like tunnel vision all in mother cub you know I you know I have to have that download I have three daughters it's like you know we've <laughs> joked about it having been like oh my god but I haven't really had the serious conversation about you know what that kind of you know I, I do know I mean it had to have I mean they came to Sundance with Invisible War and some of them were like young then. And I'm like, mm. what was I thinking? You know, I don't know. So, Have you talked anyways. to them since then about that? And, we've, and uh, we've all talked about it jokingly. They're like, you know, um, but, you know, they are, you know, the upside is they're super, super conscious, amazingly sophisticated, smart, <laughs> savvy um, people who know how to read gender politics, you know incredibly well so i mean that's good but i do think it's you know emotionally terrifying to sort of be introduced to these topics a little too early maybe i don't know have there been moments when they have educated you about something and you realize wow my generation uh didn't get that completely right or is that not the case with you i'm always i'm always um a little pleasantly surprised when the kid teaches the parent something about the evolving world, you know, the, the not the parent who is stuck in the past, but the parent who is reads the paper is open-minded is pro change, compassionate, and still they need to be educated by something. Oh, yeah. I learn from them all the time. They're on me. They're, they, they're, they're great. They're sharp. So yes, I learn from them all the time. Um, but um, 
you know, I also remember that um, my eldest, I think, went uh, went to college. And I remember coming home after freshman year and saying, why didn't you tell me? And I'm like, what? And, you know, she had gone to progressive schools. We grew up in L.A., West Side, that whole bubble thing. And she was like, the world works so differently. You know, at high school, you're coddled and like, you know, there's no gender discrimination that you can discern, right? It's all hidden and anyone can do anything. And then she just saw it so, you know, such a different experience in college and so much sexism and misogyny and stratification and hierarchies and um, gender politics. And I was like, oh, wow, that's interesting. She's like, you know, we have kid gloves, like we're left, you know, we're sent to the wolves and we have kid gloves on. And I thought that I remember that I was like, mm-hmm. you know, so. That's interesting because I, I wouldn't imagine that would be the case if it was a son coming home, because I would think that their experience would be, would be different. I could be wrong. Well, but, I don't know. I mean, yes, yeah. I would think that they may observe the, it. The culture but I, of entitlement that they right. lived in high school would be continued in college. And exactly. Huge earthquake disruption. But, yeah. you know, it's hard to see something if you're not displaced. When do, you, when do you remember, if at all, the moment that you looked around and thought, why is nobody as passionate about this subject and wanting things to change as me? I've never had that moment. I've had the moment, though, inverted, where people ask me, I remember someone asked me in Australia, I was like, why do you do what you do? And no one had done that before. I'd always had on issue on point, like spine rape in the military, you know, and had these talking books. And honestly, I looked at her and said, why doesn't everybody do what I do? (laughs) Yeah. No. Yeah. Why haven't you (laughs) cared about this? That's the, that's the logical question. I said this, that doesn't occur. I I have no idea why I do what I do. And I said to her, I mean, I can give you now that I've reflected because I've now reflected and I have an answer, but initially I was like, why doesn't everyone do what I do? And then I also, and I do think this is true. It's just me. Like, I wish I could take credit, but you know how people like, why do you dance? It's like, well, I'm a really good dancer and I love it. And I've danced since I was three years old. I kind of feel the same way. Like I always had a big mouth. I always hated injustice. I was always really thoughtful. I could construct an argument and I just didn't like injustice. So it was kind of my DNA. I don't take credit for it. Like, so I don't even like when people say, oh, it's amazing what you do. It's like, ah, it's what I do. You know what I mean? It's like, is it amazing? Like if you're, you know, yeah, I put the work in to do it really well. So I guess like, but you know, if you're a great, I mean, if you're a great singer or I, I don't know, a great dancer, you know, there, yeah, you put the work in, but you kind of, you were given that hand, you know, you're given that. So I think it's a little bit of that, but if you want, since this is a more, Mental health, mental. Oh, mm-hmm. I also wanted to say because I was musing. Your title is mental ill. The, mental the name illness. Of the podcast. Mental illness. Happy hour. Right. I, which I was thinking about, and here's what I was thinking this morning. I was thinking, why aren't we called the, all these things mental wellness? Because mental illness, we're all mentally ill. <laughs> if we weren't, we all are, right? Yes. And if we all exercise mental wellness, we wouldn't have this culture if we were mentally well, right? Racism comes from self-hatred, from depression, from anxiety. It doesn't come from, it's not empirical. It's not rational. 
you're angry and you don't want to look at yourself. So you decide someone else is the problem. I mean, it's that psychologically simple, but right. you wouldn't call someone racist mentally ill necessarily. Like you go, oh, well, that's right. their opinion or they're politically incorrect or it's wrong. Mm -hmm. But they are, but we, you know, we all are, right? Misogyny, mm -hmm. that's a mental illness. I hate the word activist. I know I used it for Michelle Dauber because it's colloquial mm -hmm. shorthand, but I think it's just um, responsible citizen. Yeah. Like activist, I think has this pejorative or it's like a special category. No, it's like if you're breathing, like this is what you do. That's being alive. Like you talk, uh, you know, you try and do good for the world and make the world a better place because that's responsible. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a niche kind of career. Right. Like of I'm going to set out to be good. <laughs> yeah, than, or I'm an know. activist. You know, no, I'm just I'm actually just a responsible citizen, which I think right. we all should be. Um, you know, you live in this world, you owe it something you do it. You know, you got, you, you know, talk to, to somebody out there who is in the process of realizing that they're not as conscious. Talk to the stereotypical, maybe he's a guy in college and He's just beginning to wake up and see who he is, how his actions affect, you know, talk, talk to the guy that assaulted Chanel Miller or someone like him, because our, I think our tendency is to want to move him to an island and cut them off from society. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't be punished, that they shouldn't go to jail, that they shouldn't experience consequences. But I think an important part of our culture growing is being willing to have conversations in an attempt for society to move forward as a whole. I think sometimes if you're dealing with a psychopath, that's not possible because they're not interested in changing or growing. But I do believe that some people are, and I don't know what what are what are your thoughts on bringing that person on board, or at least inviting them? I don't have a. I think it's idiosyncratic and specific to the person. So my first thought is I would have to ask a lot of questions, okay. and then what? base my answer on that. Okay, like what were you thinking? Why do you relate to a person this way? Where's this coming from? You know, how did it serve you? Um, what were your feelings about it? Um, can you see how it might've been a problem for someone else? If so, yeah, how, or if not, why? You know, and I'd wanna hear what they had to say. And then I would, you know, respond accordingly, you mm -hmm. know? Um, but I don't really know generically what I would say to someone, honestly. Let's talk about the uh, Alan versus Pharaoh documentary. Um, how did that come about? Oh, uh, we were, as a result of this, okay, the real, the long version of the short, I don't know what you're talking We got about. nothing but time, Amy. Okay, so <laughs> post, it's a crazy long story. 
post hunting ground, I got invited to be on the jury at Sundance. That was 2016. There's a woman's dinner at Sundance. I'm sitting down at my table. By happenstance, they seat me next to Rose McGowan. I'm 59 years old. I don't know who she, I, you know, and I'm not a culture vulture. So I, uh, so we introduced each other, introduced ourselves. And I, I'm Amy, I made Hunting Ground. And she's like, I'm Rose, I'm an actress. And then she goes, oh, you made Hunting Ground? Have I got a story for you? And she starts telling me her whole story. A Harvey Weinstein call, story? A Harvey Weinstein story. Right. I call, call um, Kirby, uh, the partner I work with, Kirby Dick, who I made most of my films with. And I say, I had the craziest conversation with Rose and she said she'd go on camera, et cetera, et cetera. And then I called uh, another person uh, who I had worked with on two films. Uh, Jennifer Siebel Newsom, actually, she's Governor Newsom's wife because I knew that she had had a Harvey story, which now she's public about at the time she'd been only told me in confidence. And I told her Rose's story and she said, you should talk to Ashley Judd. And she called Ashley Judd and I called Ashley and Ashley said she'd go on camera. So then Kirby and I started pitching around town the third film we wanted to do, which was sort of the entertainment world. And we Ooh, heard from that, everybody. That, that that must have been a tiptoeing. Oh, very tiptoeing. Very, very strange conversations with people who couldn't get us out of the room fast enough. And, um, and uh, you know, and so we... Uh, we called back Rose and Ashley and said, you know, we're going to keep pitching it and uh, see if people are interested and stay in touch, et cetera, et cetera. And then Me Too exploded and our cell phones exploded and everyone was like, remember that film you were going to do? Right. <laughs> we're super interested. And so I said to Kirby, you know what, I, I, I should just go out in the space and start talking to people and getting their stories. So Amy Hurdy, who's this wonderful investigative reporter, producer we work with, and Jamie Rogers. I started having them, Any, we sort of put something out like anyone who wants to um, share now that, you know, the floodgates have opened, we're here, we'd love to hear your story. And then we booked a house in Brooklyn for five days, five interviews a day. And Dylan was one of the interviews. And it was, we thought at the time we were going to do a series. Dylan like, Farrow. Uh, yeah, Dylan the, Farrow the daughter was one of, of the, just happened to be the daughter of right. me at Farrow and, and um uh, and uh, and we thought we at that time I was five interviews a day, women from different industries, Silicon Valley, the music industry, you know, actresses, um, Dylan, you know, everyone who had either not spoken out, who had spoken out me too, or now wanted to speak out. We were just there with our cameras. And after the Dylan, so, so we thought it would be kind of maybe um, a series looking at different industries post me too. We didn't really know, but we kind of, I always say our films find us, we don't find them. And in the course of the interview with Dylan, I was like, wait, what? She was saying all this stuff that didn't accord with my common knowledge. I mean, I'm, again, as I said, I'm, my, I'm 59. So I was the generation that grew up with this story in the media, like completely, like I was in my 20s. And I followed it carefully, but I never heard half the things that she was saying. Never, never, never. And she said, oh, no, this can, is corroborable. You know, this is actually what the police report said, etc. So I remember I called Amy Hurdy and Kirby afterwards and said this was a phenomenal interview. And boy, there's some stuff there that, you know, and Amy Hurdy was like, like a chomping at the bitch. She says, let me go at this story. I'm telling you, I think there's stuff there as well. You know, I've been looking at. So she started digging and she started coming up with information and showing it to us. And that's how that started. And what's also interesting about that, that five day 
five interview a day uh, week was that's when I met Drew Dixon, who ended up being the on the person record. we followed and on the record, which is um, an amazing documentary. Yeah, it's, thank you, boy. The, it's her really bravery, amazing. Her bravery. Yeah. I mean, it's brave for any survivor. Yeah. To to come forward and for anybody who's never experienced, I am I am a uh, survivor of, of childhood sexual oh, trauma so and. Um, somebody who's not a survivor, they don't realize all of the pitfalls that the survivor sees in opening their mouths. It's not just that other people are going to hear it. It's it. It's scary even to tell somebody who you trust because you're afraid of a hundred different things that they will think that maybe you're making too big of a deal of it or or that you could have done something differently or that you shouldn't still be talking about it or that uh you know th that your perception on it really isn't right and and for a lot of survivors the culture that was created if you were groomed by a caregiver is that you were gaslit and that you don't know where the truth is. So when you begin to talk about perhaps the most important wound in your life, you're coming at it from a place of, I'm not really sure. And if you're on top of it, talking about somebody that you might even have a complicated relationship with where there's still some love there, it's fucking terrifying. And for Drew, even though these weren't relatives of hers, these were people that launched her career in the music business, who she so eloquently describes in the documentary as having love for. Mm -hmm. And that to me is such a great example of the complexity of calling people out and speaking our truths and how it's not black and white. And to me, this goes back to what I was saying before about how we need to just talk at the very least, because it's so complicated. It's not, does this person deserve to live or die? Do they go to the island or they get to stay here on the mainland? It's no, it's what were you thinking? Did you consider what that other person might have felt? Um, have you learned anything from this? Have you tried to make amends? Have you changed your behavior? Are you getting help? You know, I, I, when this subject comes up, and I'm sorry if I'm going off on a, a tangent, but whenever this topic comes up on the podcast, I feel that I have to also share that I was a part of the problem for a while. You know, I, the things that my mom did to me, I didn't turn around and mm -hmm. do those to a child, but I objectified women. I was a pig. Mm -hmm. I was a cheater. Um, and, and I feel shame about the way that I acted for, for years. And I know that there are women out there who, who I hurt and mm -hmm. I've apologized where I can. I've made amends where necessary. Mm -hmm. Um, and I am extremely grateful for anyone who wants to include me in the conversation mm 
mm-hmm. and to see the good in me and see that I am changing and that I'm not the guy that I used to be. And mm-hmm. that hand being stuck out to me is extremely important. And so when I imagine other people who are out there, no matter what their background is, um, I think we should try to extend a hand and get some some type of dialogue going. Because if if a dialogue hadn't been provided for me, if somebody hadn't been compassionate enough to say, hey, welcome to our support group. Mm-hmm. We love you. We'll, we'll hear your story, but we're here to help you. Um, I don't think I would have, have changed. Well, also, I'm so sorry to hear all of what you said and your childhood trauma and then what it led you to later do and have that pain of of knowing, you know, that you hurt others, but that also speaks or harkens back to what I said about, you know, all of our work in films pointed to the longevity, the web of these, these traumas, Mm -hmm. you know, as you said, they're transgenerational, they're pernicious, they're unpredictable. It's not just, you know, you didn't just develop PTSD, but you also became a perpetrator yourself, which is not uncommon. Yeah. Because that's the language you learned. That's the love language you learned, perversely yeah. enough, especially yeah. for children, right? Because as yeah. you said, there's love there. So how are you supposed to know differently? <laughs> um, you know, so yes, I, I, I hear you. And I, I think that's a really important point. And I also want to point out that um, there's a restorative justice movement, you know, taking it out of the criminal justice movement, having these conversations between victims and assailants and um, that a lot of survivors advocate for, I think is equally effective, you know. Um, tell tell rather, me more about that. Oh, it's just that, uh, you know, and also what I've heard from a lot of, a lot, when I remember Hunting Ground, I don't remember Invisible War, but so many of them said, it's what we want more than anything is a sincere apology. We wanna be seen as a person. Mm-hmm. We want that person to hear what they did and then just say, I'm sorry. I'm so, so sorry. And they said that, and I did hear that over and over again. So it's, you know, um, it's, it's very, very complicated. But I also, um, you spoke about on the record, and for those that haven't seen it, Drew Dixon is a phenomenon. You will not see anyone on documentary cameras more exceptional and riveting so i just on that level you should just watch it because you could watch her i could watch her read the phone book like the woman is just incredible but also her story is incredible and what we did in that film is we followed her before she decided she didn't know whether see i met her in this brownstone in in, in brooklyn and she was like i have this simmons richards richard no russell Russell simmons Simmons story you know i worked you know she was an executive at def jam she had you talk about being on the ground floor ground floor and she had yeah champion kanye west champion john legend knew they who that you know had the eye for talent yes yeah as talent before anyone was pitching them and was seminal in many great hits which you know um so a, a force a force in the industry and um she said you know i've i've 
never thought I'd tell this publicly, but Me Too's happened, but probably hasn't happened for black women. So I'll tell you this story, Amy, but I don't know if it's ever going to go any further. And I'm not going to. And, and what I said with her is that's OK. Don't sign a release, you know, because okay. I don't want. And that's something I do with all survivors is any interviews where someone's sharing something personal and traumatic. I say, you know, you I don't want you leaving this interview feeling any more pain you suffered enough. So, you know, for, so with Drew, I said, if look, do the interview, don't sign a release and you can decide whenever, you know, and if you never decide, it's fine. You know, and if later you, you say, Hey, so in the course of the interview, she talked about, you know, she told me what happened. And then she, and then when, when she left, she said, you know, I don't know if I'm going to go public or not. I don't have to talk to times. And I again called Kirby and Amy Hurdy. And I was like, well, this woman's incredible. And, and then I called Drew back. I said, how about if we follow you while you wrestle with this decision? And I promise you, we'll disappear when you say disappear. If you get cold feet at any point and just say, I don't want you to make your decision based on our cameras. You know, I really, and I really, I don't want to lose sleep at night, Drew. So, you know, so don't feel any pressure, you know, because I, I mean it. And I always walk that walk with everybody with these stories. And she said, okay, fine. And she really, if you, if you listen to interviews done with her, she really did give us a hard time. I mean, sometimes we'd show up and she'd say, see ya. And we had no idea. We followed her for like a year and didn't know and got amazing footage and didn't know. And then finally, you know, it evolved where, where she, we, you know, she allowed us to use the footage to make on the record. So anyway, and that to me is a- one of the most compelling things about the documentary is her, her not being sure about yeah. doing it, which uh, I think, Oftentimes, people who aren't survivors, they think it's just, well, of course you tell. Of course you take the person to court. But if you read Chanel Miller's book, she'll she'll show you point by point the ways in which you will be attacked and how it is often more painful than the original assault. Yeah. And on the record explores that theme exactly. Also, because if you're a person of color, particularly a black woman, it's a whole different ball game, right? Because you're, if your perpetrator's black. <gasps> you're throwing him under the bus. He's a legend, you know. Well, it's... you're also contributing to a culture of racism that has a terrible trope against black men being rapists, which, you know, you know, your son's going to walk down the street and be looked at differently. Um, so, I mean, what, it's like a quadruple bind, yeah, right? Yeah. How do you, how do you navigate that? And that's really what that film's about, which speaks to your earlier comment about how complicated it is coming forward. And which is why we yes. were grateful to Drew for having the courage to let us follow her, because it is, as you said, important for people to know it's not easy on so many levels. And that film really unpacks how it's incredibly complicated mm-hmm. for women. And color, they're powerful. Like in ways wealthy. no one knows, Yeah, right? wealthy and yeah, powerful. Yeah. You add that into it. I mean, yeah. hers to me has to be the, the most fraught with landmines yes coming yes. forward story yes. i think i've yes. ever i've ever yes. heard yeah and that yeah. film really beautifully explicates with a lot of other women commenting Toronto Burke and Dr. Joan Morgan and Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw about just that what i call like the quintuple bind there's like five things that afflict that are that are at play with if you're a black woman when you're assaulted by a black person a black man um that aren't at play for anyone else in the culture that most of us aren't aware of and that i want to just segue to something you said earlier about the difficulty of speaking up because this is a funny story funny somewhat funny story i thought this was really brilliant so i was interviewing people i yeah for hunting ground and robin Sachs, i believe that's her name who's a prosecutor did an interview we didn't end up using it but i was really struck by this anecdote she said Amy, if you want people to understand how hard it is to speak about this to anybody, 
She said, I was prosecuting, um, oh, what'd she say? I was prosecuting, I was defending women who were raped by their, by their Johns. I was defending, I had cases with prostitutes accusing their Johns of rape. She says, so guess what my batting average was? Like zero, right? But these women were horribly abused. You know, it wasn't what the agreement had been, blah, blah, blah. So she said, I had an epiphany one day. She said, I called the jury in and I said, okay, everyone sit down. She says, now everyone close your eyes and think back on your most recent positive sexual experience, where you were, what you did, all the details, okay? Well, I'm going to wait a minute. Okay, everyone got it? Okay, great. She goes, okay, who's going to raise their hand and tell me about it? In front of all this, you know, in front of all of us. And like, no one raised their hand. And she says, okay, now this was a positive experience. Why would you think anyone would want to make up a story and come into court and tell it over and over again about a, you know, so it was interesting. And she said yes. that she thought that that did help and have an impact, you know, that it's, but it is, I mean, right. We are a society that those acts are so private. We don't even talk about them Yeah. when they're good. Since I started doing the podcast, there are so many ways of coping that, that I've heard about, you know, the, the one that you hear a lot is the girl is dating a guy. He pushes things when they're having sex. She doesn't want to. He doesn't listen to her. She's violated. She stays in the relationship because she doesn't want it to be true that she was violated. That's one of the ways our brains protect us. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? When she then, mm-hmm. every time, if she's going to open up about that to somebody, even a trusted person, she knows in the back of her mind, they're thinking, well, if it was that bad, why did you stay with him? Well, that's right. one of the things that our brains do is they don't want, we don't want the truth to be true, which is that sometimes the world is really fucking unsafe. And we would rather believe that, oh, I'm making too big of a deal or whatever, you know, for a child to, to, to say to themselves, I'm in the care of a perpetrator for another 10 years, they will believe anything other than that terrible truth. They will believe that I enjoyed it. They will believe it wasn't that bad. They will believe on and on and on and on. Well, what I've found more with children is less that and more that they will believe whatever. I mean, they don't know any different. Right. Right. So it's not that they're doing gymnastics to make this sense of this. It's that this is to them normal. Right. This is what daddies do. I remember in college, we were sitting around freshman year in a dorm room, all introducing ourselves. And then it got into late night talk sex stories. And I remember this woman so looked at all of this and said, wait, you didn't first have sex with your uncles? Wow. <laughs> we were like, oh, my God. But like, how could she know what she didn't know? What, right. you know? And that's and there is, you know, as in, in the other example you used. I mean, it's it's not 
these things happen. There's grooming, there's constant coercion, there's gaslighting. As I'm saying in these interpersonal assaults, mm-hmm. you know, um, even in the military when it wasn't family, uh, we saw grooming, you know, uh, we saw grooming on hunting ground, honestly. Um, it's not what we people think. It's not um, random acts of violence by strangers. You know, for the most part, it's not. So uh, so there's a lot of psyops is what I'm saying, is what you're saying, but also what I'm saying, you know, right. that, that come into play that condition the prey, uh, the calculated prey to respond accordingly, mm-hmm. you know. What do you... What do you got coming up next? Oh, gosh. We have something. Um, I don't know if we're going to. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. We don't talk about our projects before we do them. Okay. We have something super, super dark and intense, which I'm getting scared of doing because, I, you know, it takes a toll. You can do this yeah. stuff, but it's just really grueling, too, which I hate to say because I don't want to scare anyone for doing this work. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, um, you know, these stories are... Mm, you know, we're viral creatures and we we are each other's stories. So these stories are hard to inhale and process and live with. And I'm not, But that's not fair, right? I, I don't want to say that. That's not, it's just, uh, you know, because I guess that points to the importance of them is that they're so, right. um, if they're painful for a, a, a witness, then right. it's, then it's, then you better believe right. we need to hear them, right. right? So how do you, how do you keep your battery charged? either from the mm. darkness or just needing the energy to, to, to keep going. Do you have a mean voice in your head that drives you? No. What do you mean? No, I don't you know a that. voice that says, you know, you, you only work 12 hours. Don't be lazy. You should work 16 hours. No, I'm blessedly not. That. So you're driven by passion. That. I'm driven by passion. And I just, uh, yeah, I've started doing things. I mean, whatever people say to do. I mean, I exercise, I do cardio, I meditate. It all helps, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so it's, I've changed my mental health practice having done this work. And it helps. Have there been moments in the past when you're in the middle of doing something where the world just feels so overwhelming or dark, you know, where? Yes. You, you get any that you're comfortable sharing? No, I mean, no, I mean, I don't know. I mean, not because I don't, I, I just, I think I repress those. Right. So I like, mm-hmm. why would I go back there? But you asked, are there, <laughs> yes. I mean, yes, okay. definitely. But no, it's like childbirth. I don't try and sort of fondly remember those moments. Let's, but let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to share before, uh, before we wrap up? Um, I don't think so. Thank you so much for doing this. It is so, so important. I do say that, I guess, just another, I hate to talk about myself or the pain that this has caught, this work causes me because A, I don't want to deter anyone from doing it. And B, because it seems silly and indulgent in a strange way, because it and I hope that in only talking about it, it just points to how, what I said earlier, which is how important it is. Yeah. Right. If it affects someone who has no degree relationship to it, right. then it is something we all really need to take, take responsibility for and look at. Well, I, I, I love the work you do and I look forward to uh, 
whatever it is that you got coming out next. Thank you Thank so much you. for making time, Amy. I really appreciate it. Thank you it. for doing this. And and yes, everybody listening, please go watch. The more that the algorithms see that people watch these films, the more they'll, yes. you know, the, the funders will fund them. So, and they yeah. are really exceptionally well, I mean, I know I'm biased, but they're really, they're good pieces of cinema too. I mean, there's they're a lot, really there's a lot of pieces. information there, but they're really well-made and compelling stories. Really well-made. The uh, Alan versus Pharaoh, on the yeah, record, like the thriller. invisible war. They're, they're, yes. When your PR person reached out to me, uh, <laughs> I was like, oh my God, those are like my favorite documentaries. My favorite yeah. documentaries. Well, so thank you. And I, that takes was... a lot of courage for you to watch them, I know, because that's given your life history, that must yeah. have been hard. So. Yes, I think I, that's what I would like is for me to be the most courageous person in, in all of this. That's you what are. I would like. Don't, don't that's what... that. It is true. That is courageous of you to explore that. So I'm sorry. I'm grateful. Yeah. Thank you so much, Amy. Many thanks to her. And if you haven't seen any of the films that she's done, uh, check them out. They're so, so well done and so important. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Let's dive into some soyves. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by APA. And she asks, as someone suffering from long-term depression, what do you think are realistic expectations for the future? I think that depends on the person and how much work they're, they're willing to to do. Every person's different and motivation is really fucking hard to find when you're feeling depressed. It's so much easier to self-medicate with drugs or to just kind of, you know, fall into a state of, of hopelessness. And uh, yeah, it's hard to shake ourselves out of that. Uh, is it getting eventually better or simply learning to cope, manage, and live with depression? Um, I don't think there's one answer to that. Um, do you feel you had to abandon some dreams because of your depression? Yes. I wouldn't say dreams, more expectations about my productivity. Um, I used to just call myself lazy. And one day I realized, you know, when I'm passionate about something, I'm not lazy. I work my ass off when I'm passionate about something. So it's more than I'm, I'm driven by passion than by, I don't know, money or status or power. Uh, she writes, I'm asking because I came to realize that I might have been a little too ambitious, wishing to pursue a quite difficult, for me at least, career, but often feeling too overwhelmed by negative feelings to work constantly towards it. What do you think could be a healthy balance between having some ambition and admitting to having some daily struggles? 
boy, is that an important question. And I don't, I don't know if there's one answer for that, but I don't think they have to be mutually exclusive. Um, although it sounds like, like you know that. I think ambition can be, can be something that isn't set in stone, that it's okay to go, well, you know, my energy is pretty shitty and I'm feeling kind of overwhelmed. Maybe I just need to take some naps and uh, get some therapy, hit some support groups, or just talk to some trusted friends or do something that's comforting, you know, maybe make myself a pan of brownies and stay in bed today. And then tomorrow I'll see how I feel and, you know, maybe I'll apply for a job or, um, yeah, so often I think we, we berate ourselves with how we think things should be rather than just kind of improvising with reality and saying, but, you know, how about today? What, what is doable for me today? And I think baby steps are a really important thing. They have been for me because I can handle that. You know, instead of saying, uh, you know, I haven't gone for a jog for, you know, I haven't done a five-mile jog in, in a year. I'm going to go run 10 miles. Well, who the fuck's going to want to get off the couch and do that? So I'll say, you know what, I'm just going to walk around the block. I know that's doable. It'll only take five minutes. And then I refuse to do that <laughs> and hate myself. So... There you go. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by who calls himself me, just me. He identifies as straight. He's in his 30s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He writes, when I was 11 or 12, I was sexually molested while doing yard work with an older boy. Throughout the day, he would grab and touch my butt and genitals. I went in to use the bathroom, and he briefly pinned me against a wall and rubbed his genitals on mine. I always had the vague feeling that it was my fault because I didn't stop him. No, it is not your fault. Uh, he's never been physically abused, but he has been emotionally abused. My mom used to make me feel that my worth as a person and her love for me were connected to my performance in school and in other pursuits. She was terrified of being embarrassed by me and felt that any failure reflected on her. She would yell at me, occasionally spank, slap, or punch me for academic failures. It's interesting that you write that you've never been physically abused because that sounds like physical abuse. I once had a C on a midterm report, which was, the, was only because I had been sick and the teacher hadn't entered my makeup work. And she yelled at me and refused to speak to me for days. I tried to apologize, but she would just walk away. Sometimes she would pack her things and leave, telling me that it was my fault she was going. She would always come back within a day or two. That is fucking awful. You really want to fuck a kid up, do that, and then occasionally love them and buy them shit. Uh, any positive experiences with abusers? I don't really have thoughts at all about the boy who molested me. I don't know where he is. I still love my mother very much. Many times she was supportive and would do almost anything to help me succeed. The question is, for who? For you or for her? Darkest thoughts. I have thoughts about my children dying in ways too horrific for me to write down. I imagine their screams as if it happens. 
Sometimes I imagine myself doing it and seeing the confusion and betrayal on their faces. I also frequently imagine killing myself and think about how I would do it. There's a parking garage visible from the nearest window to my desk at work. I imagine how easy it would be to get to the top and jump. I also imagine killing myself in my house and my kids' reactions when they found my body. These thoughts are not plans in any way at all. They flash into my head like an unwanted scene from a horror film, so vivid that they sometimes make me physically sick. Darkest Secrets. When I was a child, after I was molested myself, I went on to molest other children in similar ways. It is a shame that I know will haunt me until I die. Around the same time, 11 or 12, I became addicted to pornography. When I moved out of my parents' house, I started meeting strangers from online or in public restrooms. I would meet up with men whom I would allow to abuse me physically, spanking, choking, etc., and sexually. This is odd since I'm not gay. In fact, I can't even get aroused in these circumstances, which has led to some tense situations. I don't know why I do this, but there is a vague sense that it's what I deserve. I'm married now, so all of this involves a lot of sneaking around. Every time I do this, I swear it will never happen again. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I have an obsession with spanking that has been with me since well before puberty. I fantasize about spanking women, pulling hair, light bondage, etc. Nothing too extreme or abusive. Sharing any sexual fantasies makes me feel ashamed. I was taught growing up that sex and masturbation were disgusting. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish I could talk to my parents about my struggles with mental health and make them understand that all of my moodiness and anger as a kid was an illness, not a failure of a character flaw a failure or a character flaw. Selfishly, I want them to understand how they failed me. I, uh, what, if anything, do you wish for? I wish my mom would get the help she needs. I wish my dad would realize that he can speak up and that he is smart and successful despite what my mom tells him. Have you shared these things with others? My wife knows about my struggles with my parents growing up, and she encouraged me to try therapy, which I started recently. Nobody knows about the darker parts of my past and current habits and thoughts, not even my therapist. It feels like if I speak of them out loud, it makes them real in a way that they currently aren't. How do you feel after writing these things down? Kind of sick. It's hard to stir up all of these thoughts at once. Well, I want to thank you for for sharing that because uh, I I know it is hard to reach down into that darkness and try to verbalize it. It's it's really hard, and that was brave of you to uh, to do that. And I hope that you can find some relief and some peace, whether it's through therapy or support groups or a trusted friend because you you deserve to to heal and feel peace and to have your pain validated um it's funny how or i should say interesting how when we're holding on to that secret of having been abused it's so confusing and we're so afraid that we're going to be judged. We never imagine that somebody's actually going to have compassion for us and make us feel less alone or help us feel less alone. But thank you for sharing that. 
This is from the first day in therapy survey, and this is filled out by a woman. Um, and I don't know why I don't have names on uh, on this survey. Uh, she's in her 20s, and she was a client, and she writes uh, to the question, what brought you to therapy? Finally decided to confront my depression. After years of denying it and struggling to stay afloat, I simply did not want to do it anymore. I was losing the battle and wanted to wave that white flag, but I had no flag. Any fears associated with starting therapy? I don't feel like I have anything to talk about with a therapist, and that is a scary feeling. I was afraid of sounding so apathetic that my therapist would feel like I was wasting their time. I'm afraid of disappointing people, and adding a therapist to this list I know is also adding someone to the list of people I could disappoint. What if they think I'm crazy, uh, so crazy that they commit me? Of the fears you described, did any of them come true? Not a one. Uh, what worked best for you in therapy? Uh, homework is my favorite. I also appreciate my therapist making me repeat things and listen again to what I said. It helps me connect the dots, and they are often good call-outs that I hadn't realized. Uh, what were your initial impressions of your therapist? Uh, in our first conversation, she asked me to tell her about my days, things I do, things I enjoy, things I want to do. She pointed out a change in my voice and speech pattern when talking about something I felt guilty about not doing, like being creative and making art. She pointed out how I speak differently when speaking of things I loved. I was, it was surprising and comforting that she noticed something like that after knowing me for five minutes. I instantly wanted to continue to work with her. Do you feel you can be completely honest with your therapist? I don't think I can be completely honest with anyone in my life. I want to share I want to share that I dabble in drug use <clears throat> once or twice a month and I want to share how much it helps me, but I'm afraid of judgment or her not trusting me. I'm not an addict. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. It's amazing how many fears we can have before opening up to someone, whether it's a therapist or, or somebody else. I did it last night, my uh, online support group. I did not want to talk about what was going on with me. And it was all in my head, but I, I was just afraid I was going to be judged. Um, not at all. I was met with compassion, and and it helped other people open up and... Uh, it felt great. It felt great. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Sorries in a Sack. She identifies as bisexual. She's in her 30s, uh, says that she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it. I was six or seven, and my mom's boyfriend was babysitting. He got into the tub with me with an erection. He sat behind me and was washing my back in circles, and I felt really scared and frozen. I look back and get that sick feeling in my stomach. I haven't really talked about it much in counseling yet, but my counselor knows about it, so we might go there at some point. Any positive experiences with abusers? No positive experience with the abuser. My mom ended the relationship immediately and took me to the shrink. Good for her. 
darkest thoughts, I sometimes think about hurting myself or my husband or son, usually with a knife, and I visualize the knife going into my or their flesh and what their faces would look like. Darkest secrets. When I was about six, me and a friend were playing Barbies, and she took her pants and underwear off, and we used the Ken dolls to, quote, kiss her pee-pee. I feel horrible about it to this day and like a freak or something. You were not a freak. You were a child. Uh, Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Rape as a female being raped by a male or consensual sex where I'm the male in a hetero situation. The first one makes me feel uncomfortable. The second one makes me feel aroused. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to tell my mom how much I really don't trust her anymore. She's a recovering alcoholic and gambling addict, and she fucked me over a few years ago. I'll never get the picture of her sloppy and drunk out of my mind. I feel like it ruined my faith in humanity. I haven't been able to tell her because I'm codependent and don't want to hurt her feelings. Oh, and and don't want to feel feelings. What, if anything, do you wish for? Money. Just enough to pay off the house and send my kids to cool programs and a good school when the time comes. And maybe get my nails done once in a while. Have you shared these things with others? No. Definitely not the fantasy stuff. But I have shared the codependency stuff with my partner a bit. It was fine. But he doesn't really get it, so it definitely still feels like a heavy burden. How do you feel after writing these things down? A little lighter, actually. Thank you for sharing that. And she, uh, any comments to make the podcast better? No more scam email reading. Paul, if I hear you read another one, I'm going to send you frosted Pop-Tarts for your birthday every year, and you won't eat them. I know this, but you'll be reminded every year that someone out there is only a 99% fan of the show. It could be 100%, Paul, just saying. Oh, thank you. Thank you, I think. For that, I know not everybody is not a fan of my my sense of humor. Let's see. This is from the Love Survey, and this is filled out by ADHDJ, and uh, things they love. I don't love winter, but I love how I can see all the birds' nests in the trees when the leaves are gone. I love finding out something I own glows in the dark. That's a very specific one. I love when someone gets me a gift I secretly wanted but would never buy myself. I love when I'm learning a new song on guitar and it starts to click. I love that I've worked through my anger and resentment of my mom, and now I can appreciate her for the person she is rather than the person who hurt me. I love picking the perfect tangerine, and I love when I can get the whole peel off in one piece. Oh, those are great. Thank you for that. And then finally, this is uh, a happy moment filled out by Anonymous Angst, and she writes, I love seeing my kids become their authentic selves without succumbing to the social pressures of their ages. They're brave and unique without even recognizing it in themselves. They're intuitively free to express themselves without self-conscious concerns. They're weird and uncategorizable little humans, and they're absolutely wonderful. I love that. I love that. 
I love seeing a parent see their child for who they are rather than who they want to mold them into. Well, I hope you enjoyed this uh, this episode, and I I hope uh, mm, it's scary right now. The world is fucking scary, and it's so hard to let go and just say, you know, I can't I can't control it. All I can do is try to control my my reaction and just try to be the person I want to be and be nice to myself when I stumble and don't act like I want to act. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. God, Paul. Just 90 minutes of people talking about feelings and your fucking podcast with blah, blah, blah. Anyway, if you're out there and you're struggling, just never forget that you are not alone. Even though your brain is telling you, you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely.